working through the topic of explaining Christianity. Before we um, review from last week, what would you say is the most pivotal event that took place in the last century, the last hundred years? What do you think the most pivotal event was? Last hundred years. This is subjective. There's not a right answer necessarily. Last hundred years, what do you think? Okay. The uh, technology of computers, exactly. That's a good one. Okay. The the invention of the automobile. Can you think of some significant, huge thing that, that may have been uh, pivotal in our the the um, the course of our country or our world? 9-11 was pretty big. That's what I was thinking too. How about the last thousand years. What do you think the biggest event in the last thousand years was? Printing press. Printing press? Exactly. 1500s? America. Yeah? Okay. That's significant in our history. How about in, in uh, all of history? What do you think the most significant event was? Okay. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I think that's the most pivotal event in in our history. And so that's one of the things that we are going to be looking at tonight, or this morning. Um, long day already. Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15. Last week we saw that Jesus was the Son of God. And what we're trying to do is we're trying to figure out what is Christianity all about? And we said in order to find out what Christianity is about, we need to find out about the person who is at the center of Christianity, and that is Jesus Christ. So we said the best place to look for um, truth about Jesus Christ is to look back at the original sources. Which original source are we using? We're using the Gospel of Mark. And the reason we're using Mark is, one, it's, it's concise, it's, it's straight to the point, starts right in at the miracles in chapter 1 of Jesus Christ. So, so it's a good book to use. Um, it's also a gospel of action. It's the first gospel that was written. And uh, what did we say that gospel, the gospel is about? What does it mean that we have the gospel? The good news about whom? About Jesus Christ. Chapter 1, verse 1 says, Mark tells us that's what he's writing about. He says, um, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ is at the, the core, the center of what we believe and, and how we ought to live. And so who can summarize what we learned last week about Jesus? What were some of the divine claims that Jesus made about Himself? Can you remember any of those? Okay. That Jesus was the Son of God, meaning that God was His Father or that He was God. What else did we learn about Jesus Christ? He claimed that He could do what? Forgive sins. That He was uh, able to, uh, to, to impart righteousness to a person. That, that He was a teacher. We saw that he, he taught as one who had authority. Not like some of these other teachers who had to use like what the other rabbis would say and, and kind of footnote all of their teaching with what other people had said. He was speaking on his own authority. You have heard that it was said, but I say to you. 
Um, he had power over evil spirits. You remember, he cast out the demon there. And he did that with the word of his mouth. He has power over sickness, we saw in chapter 2 when he heals the paralytic after forgiving his sin. And he did that also with his word. Um, we saw that he had power over nature when he um, calmed the storm. He has power over death even when he raised Jarius' daughter, or Jarius' daughter. And then also he has power over people. That was the last thing we saw. And that was when he called the two disciples simply by the word of his mouth. He said, come and follow me. They gave up everything they had and started to follow Jesus. So that was the first leg of our stool that we're trying to put together. We have, we're trying to come up with the gospel of, uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay. Most people, when they draw, they always apologize for their drawing. I'm going to be arrogant about mine. Okay. <laughs> that is a great picture. Okay. Okay, this is the gospel. Last week we saw the first leg that is necessary, the important truth that we have for the gospel, and that is that Jesus is the Son of God, that He has authority unlike anyone else. This week we're going to see that Jesus is the crucified. Jesus is the crucified one. This is this is that most important event in all of history that He died and then next week we'll see that He rose again, that He he, ra- he was raised from the dead. So Jesus is a man of great authority. Now, your assignment for last week was to read through chapters 1 through 5. Are there any questions or comments on what you read? All right. If not, let's get into the uh, crucifixion. And if you think of something as we go, you can um, you can ask me at that time. Um, this this morning we're going to turn our study to the death of Jesus Christ because the Bible teaches that His death on the cross changed history forever. And in order for us to understand what His death meant for us, we have to understand what a few terms mean. So first, let's define the term sin. What does it mean? that Jesus came to save sinners or that He came to be the Savior of our sins. What is, what is a sin? We talked about this last week. Okay, a transgression of God's law. It's a willful act of rebellion in word, thought, or deed. A willful act of rebellion in word, thought, or de- deed. So that means that we fail to obey God when He tells us to obey. And we um, we do things that God tells us not to do. So it's a violation of God's holiness and of His moral law, and it's doing things that we shouldn't do and not doing things that we should do. So obviously, since God is holy, we are in personal violation against God's holiness because God, you see, is our rightful King. He deserves to be worshipped and to be uh, obeyed in everything. So because of our sin, we stand in judgment, in need of pardon, in need of a way to be reconciled to our God. And that's what we're going to talk about today. We need forgiveness. And so the next term that we need to define is the term crucifixion. What does it mean? Uh, What does that term mean? Can anyone define or explain crucifixion for us? Mark? 
Yeah, it wasn't it wasn't that you would uh uh die of some sort of uh, some sort of pain or, or something like that. It was that you, you hung there and because um they would they would come later and break your legs in order that you couldn't pull yourself up. It'd be harder to pull yourself up and take a breath. And so you'd die of suffocation. Often these these uh this method of torture really lasted for several days. Um in the case of Jesus it did not. But basically yeah, it was it was often uh, preceded by a flogging. They would they would beat these men who would be put up on a tree, uh, hung up on these T-shaped beams, and it was a brutal and slow, agonizing death. So, but not only was it a physical, grueling way to die, it was also humiliating. I mean, today in our society, when we look at a cross, we we think of good things usually. I mean, we wear crosses on our um, on our lapels or, or cross necklaces or put them on our cars or in our house. And we have them in our church. I mean, it, 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 it brings to mind for us some good things. And rightfully so, because obviously our pardon is tied to that cross. But if you were a Jew back in that day, you would not see a cross in any sort of good light. You would not have a cross hanging in your house. You would not have a symbol of a cross hanging around your neck. Because a cross was a despicable thing. It was humiliating for a person to be hung on a tree, to be hung up there for all to see. And it was basically reserved for only the dregs of society, you know, criminals, slaves, and traitors. It was detestable. It was just a terrible way to die. And, And those people understood it as an offense, that those who were hung on a tree were under a curse. Because Deuteronomy chapter 21 Verses 22 and 23 say, If a man has committed a sin worthy of death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, his corpse shall not hang all night on the tree, but you shall surely bury him on the same day. For he who is hanged is accursed of God. The Jews understood that to be put upon a cross was the sign of a curse by God. Now, now that we've defined these two terms, I want to show you two problems that we have as a result of this information. First of all, if I'm a sinner in need of forgiveness, in need of forgiveness, how can I be forgiven? If I'm a sinner, how can I be forgiven? And then the second problem is, if Jesus is divine and righteous, how can He be crucified? How could someone who is perfect and did nothing wrong uh, be put upon a cross to be crucified? Those are our two problems. If I'm a sinner in need of forgiveness, how can I be forgiven? And if Jesus is divine and righteous, why was He crucified? And I think both of these questions are answered by simply looking at the meaning of the crucifixion. Let's read Mark chapter 15, beginning in verse 33. When the sixth hour came, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of the bystanders bystanders heard it, they began saying, Behold, he is calling for Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave him a drink, saying, Let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. 
And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed His last. And the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who was standing right in front of Him saw the way He breathed His last, He said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. What do we learn about Christ's death in verse 33? Verse 33, what do we learn about Christ's death? Darkness came upon the whole land, didn't it? Right. Right. And in, this, in verse 33, it says, From the sixth hour, which is noon, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. So for three hours, from noon to three o'clock in the afternoon, darkness came on the whole land. Now, why might Mark have wanted his readers to know about this detail? Right. At noon, the sun is at the top of its peak, right? It's in the, in the height of the sky and it should be shining brightest. brightest. And, and it was at that point that it was at the darkest. And so Mark brings out this point. He gives the time of the day in order to show the symbolism, as Mark said, that literally darkness came over everything. Now, sometimes when we think about this story, we think, well, maybe God was judging those people for rejecting His Son. And that could be partially true, Okay, that God was bringing darkness and you've got to remember that darkness in the Old Testament always referred to spiritual darkness. Okay, Not always, but when it was used in, in, in terms of spirituality, it was used to, to mean uh, evil. Okay, So God could have been bringing judgment on the whole land. So sometimes we think there is darkness everywhere except for on the cross. There is this nice, bright, shining light like we see in pictures. But that wasn't the case at all, was it? There was even darkness on His Son. On Jesus Christ... His beloved. And so, um, God's judgment fell on this innocent man. Now, why would that happen? What is going on here? Look at verse 34. <clears throat> at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of the bystanders heard it, they began saying, Behold, he is calling for Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine put it on a reed and gave him a drink, saying, Let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. In this passage, we have Jesus fulfilling his purpose on earth. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came into the world, took on flesh in order to bear the burden of our sin, to bear the punishment that we deserved. That is to say, He is without sin. He took upon Himself the penalty that we deserved. He became our substitute. So the first thing that we see is... Sorry, I didn't give you the first blank. Jesus is our satisfaction. He's the satisfaction of God's wrath. Or we could say, Jesus, our darkness, really. He became spiritual darkness for us. He took upon Himself spiritual darkness. And then the second thing that we're looking at now is Jesus is our substitute. Jesus died in our place. He is our substitute. The evidence is of this is seen in verse 34 when He says, My God, my God, why have You forsaken Me? What is it that I've done? It expresses the profound horror that there was, the separation now that was between Jesus, who had been 
perfectly in, in unity with His Father was now separated from His Father. God had forsaken Him because of the sin that was upon Him. Jesus was, at that time, I believe those three hours were indicative of God pouring out His wrath upon Jesus Christ. So let me help. Let me try to help us illustrate this point. Okay, this book right here is going to represent our sins. Okay, let's suppose that every single sin that we've ever committed in word, thought, or deed is in this dark book. Some of you might need a bigger book than this. <laughs> all right, but this this is our sin. It's all recorded here. Um, we cannot stand righteously before God. Now let's re- uh, let's. Take this hand right here representing you and me and the ceiling God. Between us and God is all of the records of our sin. Colossians 2.14 says that between us and God is the record of our debt. It stands there. We cannot have any relationship with God with this sin in our place. Now, this book represents Jesus Christ. He had a life story as well. But unlike us, with all the sin that we bear, he did not have any sin in his book, did he? No sin at all. In fact, in place of, of all the bad things that we've done throughout our life, he filled it up with all these righteous, holy, great things in, in perfect um, obedience to his Father. So he has all of his story here. And, and so what happens is at the crucifixion, we now have our sins, all of our unrighteousness, our, our foolishness, our disobedience to God is put upon Jesus Christ at the cross. And He takes upon Himself the wrath of God. He takes upon Himself all of the punishment, the shame, the payment that we deserved. Jesus Christ took it upon Himself. And so now you see that Jesus Christ has at that time, he has something between himself and God. And that was those three hours. And now what happens to us over here? All of our unrighteousness is gone. Now nothing stands between us and God, does it? We are washed. We are cleansed. All of our sin is gone. So now we can have a perfect relationship with God. And not only that, we now take Christ's righteousness and put it on our account so that instead of receiving the punishment that we deserved, not only are we free, but we're also credited with Christ's righteousness. This is what the Bible calls justification. This means that we are declared righteous before God. That now, it's not just that we don't have sin between us and God, but when God looks at us, He sees the perfect righteousness of Christ. And He treats us just as He would His own Son. What a great thing that Christ did on our behalf. Jesus Christ was our substitute and that's why He had to die. That's why He had to put Himself up on the cross. We'll see later that He did that willingly. And uh, so Jesus died so that He could be a punishment for for our sin. And... I just mentioned your sin and mine, but you can imagine that just all the shame that you felt because of your sin, Jesus took that upon Himself. But it wasn't just yours. Okay, He had millions 
and billions of books full of people's sin put upon his shoulders. And so you can imagine um, how difficult that must have been for him. I mean, you, you think of all the time that you have spent just thinking of your own sin and being frustrated and shamed over your own sin. Jesus Christ had to do that for you, even though he never committed any of them. Any questions on any of this? Yeah. Right, right. Obviously, um, we'll talk about this next week when we get into the resurrection, but God proved that this was a favorable thing that He was doing to His Son. Ultimately, He didn't want to do that. Jesus didn't want to have to do this. Um, remember, he, he prayed that he, if this cup can be passed from Me, please allow it to, to happen. But, um, but obviously, because Jesus Christ was resurrected, it proves that God was showing favor on His Son and that ultimately this was a good thing. Any other questions on Jesus Christ, uh, our substitute? Alright, let's look at verses 38 and 39 because now we're going to see that the temple curtain was torn in two. Verse 38 says, "...and the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who was standing right in front of him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was..." The Son of God. Now, the temple was comprised of two rooms. You had the large outer room, and then you had the smaller inner room, which was called the Holy of Holies. And this room was symbolic, was the symbolic dwelling place of God Himself. This is where the priests would go to to um, to speak to God, to offer their sacrifices, and so on. But you could not enter into this inner room without being cleansed first. And so there was. Uh, there was a need to constantly be bringing blood sacrifices to atone for the sins of the people. And this blood cleansed symbolically. It cleansed these priests and these people. Because anyone who stood in the Holy of Holies without having been cleansed first would be killed because God demands perfection in His, His presence. And so the blood provided a way of forgiveness and therefore fellowship with God. And this is the verse that Mark just quoted from Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22. The law requires that nearly everything else be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Now, in the Old Testament, they had to continually offer sacrifices over and over and over again. So it atoned, but only for a short period of time. It didn't ultimately atone for their sins. Ultimate atonement and final atonement is only received through Jesus Christ. And so, they had to continually bring regular sacrifices. You can imagine how much blood was shed on these altars. How much wood was used up to provide uh, firewood, basically, for these altars. It's just constant sight of blood. And it kind of helped the people, I think, visually see that my sin caused the death of that animal. 
And I think the same thing is true with the death of Jesus Christ. When we look at someone righteous like Jesus Christ and we think of Him on the cross, we should think He does not deserve to be there. We should look at that and say the blood that He that was that was shed because of my sin should not have had to happen. I should have paid for my own sin, but He paid for it on my behalf. Mark? Right. 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 You think about Malachi when they were bringing their their uh, spotted lambs or their ones with broken... He's, and uh, God says to them, why don't you go try to offer those to your governor? You would never do that. But now you're bringing them to me as a sacrifice? No, you have to bring a perfect sacrifice. Um, the lambs, I believe, would be the firstborn, so it would be the best of their crop. You can't just take the worst or not their crop, but the best of their livestock. You can't just take the worst one and bring it there. Why give something to God that costs you nothing? You're, that the animal is going to die and you weren't going to use it for anything anyway. So the significance here with Jesus Christ um, and, and the tearing of the temple curtain is that it enables us to now have a relationship with God. You see, before we had to go through the priest. We had to go into the Holy of Holies. We had to have a sacrifice. Now that temple curtain is torn in two. In Hebrews chapter 10 it says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain, that is, His body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Jesus Christ was the perfect sacrifice. Jesus was our sacrifice. So we, we saw that Jesus was our satisfaction, satisfaction of God's wrath. Jesus was our substitute. And then we just saw that Jesus was our sacrifice, that He, he made that way into the Holy of Holies, into the place where God dwells, unobstructed by anything that any of our actions, anything that, that any priest would do for us. Now we have direct access, so He is our sacrifice. Any questions on Jesus, our sacrifice? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah, it wasn't made of Kleenex material or something. <laughs> yeah, and the and uh, and I think the the image would have just been startling to think about that Jesus is hanging on the cross, the whole land is dark, and then the curtain, the te- the temple curtain is torn in two. And looking back on that, I would think that that would would strike a uh, a lot of emotion and a lot of of thought, a lot of of hard meditation for the disciples and people who understood what was going on at that time. So Jesus Christ was our sacrifice. Well, the final concept we need to consider this morning is re- that's regarding Jesus' crucifixion is that Jesus was our ransom. Jesus was our ransom. Turn to Mark chapter ten. 
Mark chapter 10, verse 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give His life a ransom for many. From this passage, we learn that Christ came to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. What is a ransom? We, we know this term from our day. What is a ransom? Right. We think of it in terms of slaves or um, kidnappings, um, uh, things like that. So it represents a payment to claim something or someone that has been lost, captured, or enslaved. So you you, uh, you give them money in order to get that back. A, a government could purchase the freedom of a captured sol- soldier by paying a ransom, or a, a slave of the or a prisoner of war could free could not free himself on his own. He'd have to have someone else free him, right? Because he is in bondage. He can't, he, he can't get to his money back home or whatever. He is he is enslaved. Now. Uh, the Bible refers that all men to the fact that all men are apart from Christ as slaves to sin. That we are in bondage. We can't go out and, and try to pay for ourselves to get out of this situation. We can't do enough things to get out of this bondage of sin. In fact, the irony of the world is that they tell us the exact opposite. They tell us that if you become a Christian, you will be enslaved. But the but the scriptures don't speak that way at all. In fact, Romans chapter 6, verse 20 says this, When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. And what benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves to sin, the benefits you reap lead to holiness and the result is life, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Our Lord. So, they, you know, the world says you can't indulge in all these great sinful desires. You can't do all these sinful things, these these uh, these pleasures that you want to partake in. But the Bible says no. It's the exact opposite. It is when you are when you are following after the lust of this world, you are enslaved to sin. You cannot get out. And why would you want to keep doing that, Paul says? Those things all result in death. They result in certainly physical death. We we can see that. But it also results in spiritual death because we are, as I said before, we are separated from God. Why not be a slave to righteousness? Be controlled by righteousness which all when when you are practicing those things of righteousness after having been saved by God you are no longer a slave to sin. Rather, you are a follower of God and those things all lead to life, to eternal life. Something that will last forever. So, going back to Mark, Mark 10.45 reveals to us that God has purchased our freedom through the death of His Son. So, Christ is our ransom. On the cross, He paid the debt we were wholly incapable of paying and therefore purchased our redemption. He secured our freedom from the penalty and punishment by shedding His own blood on the cross. And this is the great hope that we have as Christians. Romans chapter 8, verse 1 says, Now there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You see, you have to have Jesus Christ's righteousness applied to you. You have to have His sin be paid for by Him. When you're in Christ, 
there's no condemnation. There's nothing that can that can uh, separate you now from the love of God when you're in Christ. And that is our great hope. And what I want you to notice here in verse 45 is that He did this freely. It says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. He gave His life. He wasn't constrained. Obviously, there was a... Uh, part of his human nature that did not want to go to the cross, but he wasn't uh, forced or, or limited by that. He laid down his life on his own accord because he knew that was what God wanted for him and for all of us. So it's a great uh, story. It's a great truth that we can all rest in that Christ was our ransom. All right, any questions on Jesus Christ, our ransom or comments? All right, Paul writes in Galatians 6.14, But may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. We asked earlier, why was Jesus Christ crucified? Why do Christians glory in this, this symbol of the cross? What's so special about it? I mean, if it was so despicable back at that time, why do we glory in it? Right. We glory in the cross because it is in the cross that our unmerited that the unmerited love of Christ is is placed upon us. That we see that that God's justice was now enacted upon us not in the way that we deserved, but in the way that that was uh was put upon Christ so that Christ came to take away the sin of the world. His punishment was the payment for our sins. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. On the cross, the Lamb of God, the perfect Lamb, took upon Himself the wrath of God. Jesus Christ was our substitute. He ransomed us from the slavery of sin and He, he brought us into communion with God, a sweet fellowship with God. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also died for sins once for all. The just for the unjust, so that He might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Christ died for our sins, the just for the unjust. He was just, was in, was in no way deserving of what He received. We were unjust in, in every way deserving of what we received. And instead of receiving the wrath of God, we received mercy. Our sin was put upon Christ and His righteousness was placed upon us. And so this ransom is what we all desperately need. That we need to, um, we, we don't need to, to resort to our own works or our own righteousness. We have to resort to Jesus Christ. And now this, this payment is not just simply given to everybody. This is something that I didn't make clear earlier. This is not something that just everybody gets automatically. This belongs to those who repent and believe. And we're going to talk about that uh, three weeks from now. Next week, we're going to talk about the resurrection. Jesus Christ, the resurrected. And then the, then two weeks from now, we'll talk about repentance. What it means um, to, to be repentant and then uh, 
and then also to um, to have faith, and that'll be the last week. Actually, there's one other week in there um, that I missed. But anyway, so that basically leaves us with a choice. You see, if we don't repent, we'll have to bear our sin alone. And that means that we have no substitute. And all of those sins that were put upon us, we have to pay for on our, on our own. So that leaves, with the, leaves us with a choice. Do we want to pay for them on our own or do we want Christ to pay for them? And that's the beautiful offer that Christ give to, gives to us. That He, His blood is sufficient. It's a sufficient atonement for our sins. And as John says in his epistle, not for our sins only, but also the sins of the whole world. All right, next week we're going to look at the third pillar of Christianity, and that is the resurrected. Okay, when we have these three, we have an understanding of these three pillars, then this stool it has a solid foundation, and we can we can trust in the finished work of the gospel. Now, what I'd like for you to do, you have there on your assignment for next week, is read chapter six through ten. This will help give you a um, good understanding of this gospel of Jesus Christ. And then next week we'll get into the resurrection. Any questions on anything we talked about today? Yeah. That book illustration was just was illustrating our our standing with God that He has or that Christ paid for all the sin. Obviously we still sin. Right. That, yeah, that's a good point. Right. Yeah. This is this is how God views us now. Okay, as being sinless, as nothing standing between us and Him. Okay, that, that all that sin was put upon Jesus at the cross. Now we can still sin. That doesn't mean we're going to be perfectly righteous. And I think that's a good point. Um, but do you realize that that Jesus, when He paid for your sin, He didn't just pay for the sin before you got saved. Okay, and I think that's the point you're making. He also paid for all of your sin. This is the book that includes your whole life story. Okay, maybe you got saved right here in the middle. But Jesus also paid for everything here at the end as well. Okay, So, obviously, in order to stay in fellowship with God, we need to continually confess that sin. But that doesn't mean that we're no longer a Christian when we, when we sin. Now, this comes back to us somehow. No, once Jesus takes upon Himself your sin... It is eternal. So, our response should be repentance and faith. That's what our response should be. And then also, it should be a continual um, uh, overflowing of love and, uh, and joy, really, in the cross. And that's why we sing so much about it. I mean, it sounds kind of sadistic to, think, to sing about the blood of Jesus Christ, but we sing about it all the time. You could see how an unsaved person could come into our church and say, why do you talk about that? It's so disgusting. But the blood of Jesus has a, a great meaning for us because it was what atoned for our sins. Alright, let's, let's bow together for prayer. Our Father, we're thankful so much for Jesus Christ. We're thankful for Your perfect plan where You bruised Your Son. You crushed Him. 
so that we would not have to be crushed by Your wrath. And, and although we deserved it, He took it upon Himself gladly so that we could be saved. And that's what He came to do, to, to, to give His life as a ransom for many. And we pray that our lives would be an evidence of that mercy and grace that You bestowed upon us by displaying it to the world around us so that You can um, continually call out people for Your namesake, that You can ransom them as well. And we know that all that is in Your eternal, perfect plan, and we want to do our part in, in glorifying You in that way. So we pray that You would give us grace and wisdom as we seek to serve You. For we pray in our great Savior's name. Amen. All right, you're dismissed.